0: If you have a Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 9. Rachel Toon did the first half of this when I was gone, which I'm grateful for. Um, I was preaching at Ridgecrest Family Camp down the road, uh, so just I was preaching last week, just so you know, just not here. We're going to start at the 30th verse. You can read. Uh, on the screen, you can look at your own text You can just listen. Uh, there should be Bibles around you. So if you don't have your own Bible, if it doesn't have somebody's name on it, just take it. It's yours. Uh, we'll sort it out later. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking them in his arms, he said to them, "'Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me.'" John said to him, "'Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us.'" But Jesus said, "'Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us.'" For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and you were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame with two feet Father, thank you for your word that speaks to us. Thank you that these words of Jesus are still present to us, applicable to us. God, we pray for your help. We ask that we would not just hear the words floating around us, but that we would actually listen and have the words penetrate our own hearts, that we would be split open wide in front of you so that you could reach into the guts of who we are and reshape and reanimate us. God, we pray that your spirit would move, that you would help me to speak those words rightly, and that all of us together would be drawn closer into Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, The Gospel of Mark, one of its running themes is the nature and the cost of true discipleship, of what it means to follow Jesus. And uh, in the second half of the Gospel of Mark, which we're in, that the volume on that kind of gets turned up because Mark is focusing so much of our attention on what is about to happen to Jesus in Jerusalem. You can hear that right at the beginning of this passage that we just read, where Jesus explicitly tells them the Son of Man is going to die and be raised again. And they just, they don't understand what he is saying, which has been true the whole time. They have not understood what he was saying. And and it's understandable. Jesus is using this title for himself, the Son of Man, to describe this figure in uh, Jewish prophecy that there would be somebody who who is a person who ascends to take hold of authority to rule and to reign. And they're glorified and magnified. And so when Jesus is using that title, that's who they're thinking of. But then he says that he's going to die and rise again. And those things don't fit. They don't belong together. So they have a really hard time understanding how this is, could possibly be true. The Jewish People have some idea of a resurrection, but they don't think about it the way that Jesus is describing. Jesus is describing this one person who shouldn't be defeated dying, but then this one person being resurrected. They believe that the resurrection is going to happen either everybody at one time, or at the end of time, the people of Israel, all of them, will be resurrected. This thing, like dying, and a couple days later, he's alive again, it's just weird. They don't get it. And so they don't say anything because they're embarrassed. They say, like, we don't... Are you going to tell them? I'm not going to tell them. So nobody's going to tell them. So they are walking and have a different conversation then. And we know what the conversation is because Jesus pulls it out of them. And he says, um, what are what you talking about? And, of course, usually... In the Bible, uh, when Jesus is asking a question, he knows the answer to the question. He wants them to say the answer out loud. And they do the thing that I did when I was a kid that my kids do now. What were you doing? I don't know. What what were you doing? Uh, You know, stuff. Things. Apparently, they'd been having a conversation about who is the greatest. And I don't know how that conversation works. I wish Mark would have put more effort into describing that. It seems like a conversation I can't imagine ha- having. I don't know if they're looking at the 12 and saying like, okay, let's rank. Let's just do this. Where do we think that we are? One to 12. Who, who are you on the sliding scale? I don't know if somebody says, you know, I'm probably about a five or a six But they're really thinking, I hope somebody thinks I'm a two or a one. Um, Or if somebody just jumps out and says, you know, it's probably me. I'm probably number one, probably. And then you guys sort of sort it out from there. It's a really weird conversation to be thinking about and to be talking about out loud. And you know it's weird because when Jesus asks about it, they don't want to say what they were talking about. But Jesus knows. Jesus knows. And he pulls a child nearby, seems like a little boy, into the middle. And he says, if you want to be great, then you're going to have to serve. And you're going to have to welcome little ones like this for me. That's how you get great in the kingdom. And this is, this is a place and a time... Family is incredibly important. Children are incredibly important. But it is not like our culture. Uh, Our culture sort of idealizes and worships children, youth. People spend a great deal of money to hide their age, to look like a child, dress like a child, act like a child for as long as possible. And whatever the kids are doing is what is cool. That is not this place. Children do not rule households here. The people who rule households are the head of the household. The patriarch, the man, the older men of the family rule. And so Jesus is pulling the complete unexpected participant into the middle and saying the greatness of the kingdom, it revolves around people like this who are... Weak, who are powerless, and who are on the fringes of things. They're not the tentpole of society. They're on the fringes. These are the kinds of people that you want to welcome if you want to be a part of my kingdom, if you want to be great in the kingdom. <clears throat> this is sort of part of why we, we bring children in with us. We know, if you have kids, the most comfortable that you will be with your Children in church, as if they were not with you. If they were in a different room playing, being loud, and you were like not visibly responsible for their screaming, that would be very comfortable for you. And for people who don't have kids, that would also be more comfortable for you. But we bring kids in here on purpose when they're the most tired and hungry. And every, it all pops off and it gets loud and uncomfortable. Everybody's uncomfortable. It's not, it's not just you. You don't have to feel bad. Everybody's uncomfortable. Because we actually, we believe Jesus when he, when he says things like this. That you, you actually should welcome little ones like this into the room, into the middle of things. Because it's the heart of the kingdom. And... He doesn't just mean little children literally. He does mean it literally, but he means more than that because he starts to apply that title, little one, child, to everybody who would be his. So the presence of children actually reminds you and I of our identity, though we seem like competent adults in the kingdom. We are the little ones of Jesus. And Jesus, he starts to make very clear that following him, that being his disciple, will bring pain. And he's going to, he'll, he'll present that on two fronts. That the first way that you will receive pain in following Jesus is the way that he will come after your ego. The way that he will come after your sense of status and self-worth. Because the disciples are, are doing <clears throat> What is very natural to us, where do I rank? Where do I stand? Do I receive the honor that I deserve and how might I receive more? That, that's a seemingly natural human hunger that all of us have. And the disciples are feeling it as well. And Jesus is telling them that if they're truly going to be his disciples, if they want to fall under his mastery, under his teaching, under his rule and reign, they need to change their barometer. They need to change the way that they measure what is great and honorable and deserving of reward. And it's the opposite of what they think. They think what they need is the attention and honor of other people. And Jesus says the way towards greatness, the path towards having that hunger fulfilled is doing the opposite of what you think it is. It is not in in building up yourself so that other people will acknowledge your greatness. It is giving away your greatness and humility to serve those who cannot even directly benefit you. That is what greatness in the kingdom looks like. And this message is painful To hear for the disciples, it is not natural to them, and it is painful for us. We live in a culture, in a place, in a time that is especially adept at at making us think all the time about ourselves and how we acquire for ourselves honor and respect in highlighting our own greatness and power. We have social media and other forms of media, and we have advertising, and we have An ethos in our sports and how kids are raised in their sports, all the way into professional a professional life. Everything that we do is constantly having an a mirror angled at ourselves to ask the question: Who sees me? Who will honor me? Who will recognize my own greatness in comparison to others? And how do I acquire more? The and you can do your best to say, that's probably not healthy, that's probably not good. But the more you participate in those systems, the more that you participate in social media, the more that you participate in this lifestyle of, of marketing and image maintenance, you will find it increasingly difficult to resist the tide that is going to keep pushing you to look at your life through the lens of a camera pointed at yourself. And you will evaluate and measure yourself, your physical appearance, your accomplishments, your success in life, by measuring yourself against other people who are also living their life through a lens pointed at themselves. It is very, very difficult to escape that mode of living. And Jesus says that if you're going to follow him, those people, those metrics, those means of establishing honor for yourself through the acknowledgement of other people, it must be taken away from you. You can't have it. And that's really, really difficult. There is a kind of expectation in following Jesus at the direction of Jesus that you very well may have the appearance of being forgotten... And unimportant and overlooked that you may in fact become like a child and not in the ways that you would hope for. Jesus will bring pain to you and he will bring it at the point of your ego and the ways that you measure your own worth. But then he's going to go on and he'll start talking very directly about the pain that it will come as you deal with the issue of sin in your life. Jesus is, is going to use this analogy that sin is so dangerous that you will be better off cutting off your, your hand, your eye, your foot if it's leading you towards sin, because he said it's better to have, two, two, to have one eye going into heaven than two eyes going to hell. The image he uses here, in our translation that says hell, he's referring to this area outside of Jerusalem, Gehenna, that had been a place where people had sacrificed children to Molech, and in the reforms of Josiah had been converted into a garbage uh, depot to sort of... Dishonor what had happened there, and so then Jerusalem would start to dump their trash in this little valley outside of Jerusalem, and they would constantly fire it and refire it and stoke it. So it just stunk. It was this perpetual burning of garbage, and he says, "This is ultimately where sin takes you—the the garbage heap of destruction and judgment." Jesus is borrowing the language, using the language that Jewish people had started to borrow from this imagery of Gehenna. And he says, you are are better off moving away from that garbage heap, one-handed, one-eyed, one-foot, than you are taking a dive in fully intact. Jesus is deadly serious about sin. And unfortunately, people, Christians, church people, have taken pieces of good theology and put them out of order and somehow been able to tell a story. Once you follow Jesus, you don't need to worry about sin anymore because he takes care of it all. And so basically, in regards to sin, it's kind of easy now you're good. And there's just no way to tell that story from this passage. It, it doesn't exist in the New Testament anywhere, especially in this passage. What Jesus says instead is that following him and dealing with sin is an incredibly painful thing and a necessary thing. Because you are going to be asked, going to be required, perhaps, to take things in your life that, on their face, are good. They're not a problem. They're not wrong on their face, but they cause you to sin. And you have to cut those things out of your life, even though, for other people, they won't. It, it, it's, it's describing a life that you are so committed to following Jesus and dealing with sin that at the pain of losing something good and ordinary, you you will throw it all away so that you can follow Jesus under his direction. The people of the New Testament will not move away from this language. It's not like you can read other books in the New Testament and be like, well, Jesus didn't really mean that. We can just tone this down a second. Paul will say to you that you should be regularly crucifying your own natural desires. A horrible, torturous way to die. Paul is saying that's, that's what you should be thinking of when you look at your own desires of the flesh. There, there is no way that I can stand up here and tell you, you know what, being, being a disciple it's pain-free. I would be looking at you and saying the opposite of what Jesus is saying in these teachings. Following Jesus will bring you pain. Now, the thing is, though, that you are not meant to hear that and to then think, this is a life of misery. Because that's not what Jesus is describing. Jesus is describing, ultimately, if you listen to this and the rest of his teaching, a life of goodness and beauty, of fruitfulness and freedom. He's not not presenting to you a form of slavery so that you become the least happy person in whatever room that you're going around. He's not telling you that all of life will be suffering. That's not what he's saying. There There are... Mistakes that you can make here as you listen to him. One mistake is the one that I mentioned that you think that following Jesus, having Jesus be your master, should cost you nothing. You find a way to sort of squirm your way around what Jesus is saying in this text, and you just be like, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, I can do whatever I want. That version of following Jesus is not in the Bible. It doesn't exist. Maybe that doesn't bother you. It bothers me. It's not in the Bible, it's not allowed. Jesus loves you, this I know, come and die to follow him. That's what he's saying. Now, the other mistake that you can make is you can make for yourself a list of behaviors. A way that you decide you you think is the most holy way to live and you desire to make yourself holy. Holy. So you try as hard as you can to look at the life of an ideal disciple and back your way in to following Jesus. You'll try to be a good enough person all on your own and you'll have so much trouble. It will be so hard for you and you will fail. And some of you will be like, I must be doing the right thing because I really feel like I'm suffering here. That kind of sounds like what Jesus is describing. And you will labor and labor and labor under your own inability to cut out sin out of your life, whatever that might look like. There's a whole range of how sin manifests itself in your life and mine, and it looks different for me than it looks for you. You can be struggling with sexual immorality or drunkenness or gluttony or selfishness. There's a whole spectrum of what sin might look like. And you can labor and labor and labor, trying to cut it out of your own life. You can do as best you can. You might even make sure that nobody sees you, nobody tries to honor you, that you don't take any credit for anything ever. You run from the front of the room to go to the back of the room. You try to be the best kind of person, and you are miserable. All you feel is the pain of what you think is discipleship. And, the, and following Jesus just becomes for you, well, it's the right thing to do. I'm doing what is the right thing to do. And you are miserable. True discipleship must have Jesus in the center. You cannot see and understand the beauty of what he is asking of you unless you see the beauty of who he is. Jesus is not going to tell you, hey, figure out how to serve those you do not want to serve. Welcome the unlovely and the weak and the powerless. Figure it out. Jesus, instead, is the Son of Man, The one who rightfully rules and reigns over heaven and earth. And he will set aside all of the trappings of his own power to wrap around himself the clothing of a servant and a slave to wash the feet of his disciples. Notice what Jesus does with his own disciples who cannot understand what he is saying. They are so lost all the time. They themselves, maybe to a degree they don't understand until years later, are the children They're the ones who are causing problems in the room, who are a distraction, who can't stay focused on what Jesus wants to do, who are self-obsessed and view the world through the lens of themselves. They are children, like Jesus is describing. And notice what he does here in Mark chapter 9. He doesn't listen to them after they describe, hey, rank me 1 to 12 this conversation and say, you guys are idiots, get out. Figure this out somewhere else. What does he do? He sits down with them. He makes space in the room for them. He brings them close to him. Because Jesus will not just abandon you to the standards of discipleship, he will show his disciples what it looks like to follow him. And in Jesus, they see Jesus prioritizing loving and serving the incompetent ones, just like he has described. They become the ones that he is serving. You know, they will spend their time looking outwards and saying like, hey, Jesus, guess what? I stopped those off-brand disciples who were saying stuff. They're not really one of us. They're not really one of our team. And and Jesus will look at those people who are so busy trying to make sure the, the lesser people are not counted as being on the team. He will look at them and say, you are on my team even though they have lived as disciples even, as people who want to exclude and make it difficult and keep them out, Jesus will treat them otherwise. Jesus will say to them, sin is a deathly problem. It will destroy you. And the pain that you would feel and, and receive from being trapped in sin is enough that should drive you even to do the most extreme thing to get away from it. And yet, you will fail. He's looking at the disciples who he knows will fail to understand and to do and to obey. And what does Jesus do? He takes the pain of their own sin into his own body. He will offer the hands that they will not cut off for themselves. He will offer his feet for the feet they will not cut off for themselves. He will offer his own life for the life of his disciples because they are people who are caught in sin and he desires to set them free. And if you don't see Jesus As that person, the cost of what it means to follow him will never work out for you. It will never be enough for you. Why should I stand up here and tell you, hey, you should deny yourself, don't seek any credit, serve the most annoying and uncomfortable people. Also, the things that give you natural and easy pleasure, don't do them. Just enjoy that life. How could I say that to you? with any integrity and say, no, seriously, this is a good life. That's a terrible life. But you know what is a good life? A life when the very Son of God does not count His own glory and majesty as more important to Him than you. The life that you are turning aside from, that you think is so beautiful... It's nowhere near as beautiful as the life and love that he offers you. It is painful to let go of those things. It is a lifetime of learning to let go. To not need other people to give you the praise and the honor and the glory that you crave. It is a lifetime of learning that the most important person on any team at any given time is not me or the person I do or do not like, it is Jesus. The most important pleasure and desire that I can have in my life is not the desire that I have for money or sex or power or any of those things. The most important desire that I have in my life is the desire for Jesus. It will cost me my whole life to be wrestling with that. And it is the best life that you can have. Because otherwise your quest for glory, your desire for pleasure, your desire to be at the center and at the pinnacle will never be fulfilled and it will crush and destroy you. It will enslave you. It will ruin you. And you'll be thrown into the trash heap of constant Destruction, because that's what you've made for yourself with your whole life. That's all that's left. And in Jesus is a glorious possibility of a life that is true and good and beautiful. That would be so generous as to make space for tiny little children, for incompetent disciples. For people who can barely say no to sin. In Jesus is a life that is so much better than we construct with our own hands or imagine with our natural imagination. Now, if you're here today and you've, you're a Christian, you may be realizing I have been following Jesus on my terms, seeking my own glory for a, a span of time now. Maybe it's a, you've had a rough morning, maybe you've had a rough week, maybe it's been a long year. I don't know what it might be for you, but you might be sitting here saying, you know, I've actually been asking the question, how can I be the greatest? Who will acknowledge my greatness? Most of the time, that's the question that animates my life. And if that's you today, Jesus does not say to you, figure it out, fix it. And then come to me. What you need to do is you need to stop. And you need to repent. Repentance does not mean fixing yourself up and then finally acknowledging, yeah, this is what I've been doing, this is what I've been saying. Repentance is stopping and turning to him and say, would you deliver me and carry me home? And Jesus will. Will. Because that's who Jesus is. He's always himself. And he will be now in the moment of your failure. And if, and if you're here today and you're saying, I'm a Christian, I've done the whole thing. But I've been protecting, justifying, rationalizing, and living with my sin for a long time. The sin that, that I've hidden pretty well and the sin that I don't care to hide anymore because I'm just not ashamed. But I know It's sin. You could be all kinds of in bed with sin one way or another. And today, it may feel like what you need to do is clean yourself up. But getting right with God is stopping and acknowledging your failure and letting him make you right. Jesus offered his own body for you. Let him take care of you even now. And if you are here today and you're saying, I don't follow anybody that way. i have not followed Jesus that way. I don't follow anybody that way. I follow me that way. You are being offered an alternative way of life. It's true. You are being offered a different kind and quality of life. One that is not constrained and defined by your own smallness, but on the greatness of Jesus. And today, if you want that... Jesus is not going to make you jump through a bunch of hoops to get there. He's instead going to offer you everything. It will cost you everything. It will cost you everything. But what is being offered to you is so good that it is a good deal. And you would be wise to make the investment of your whole life. Because what you will receive in return is worth so much more That is on offer to you today. No matter how far you have fallen short of Jesus' description of discipleship, that is what Jesus would do for you because of his great love for you. Take him up on his offer. Today, what all of us need, wherever we are in relation to this question, is to see Jesus more clearly. When you see Jesus being a disciple, living a life of discipleship begins to make sense. And all of us need to see Jesus more clearly today because in Jesus is a life that is unquenchable, unstoppable, and gives us all the life of God himself. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the kindness of your love and your offer towards us. I pray that you would help us Help us to respond, and not just hear, but actually respond. I pray for those who, who are already following you or trying to follow you, who are realizing that they've been beset by this question, who sees me in my greatness, who will acknowledge my worth, who have been seeking to draw lines and make tears so that they can be in and other people can be out. God, I pray that you will help us to see that the greatness of the kingdom is not in the glory that we would make for ourselves But in the embrace of the glory of Jesus, which came at the cost of his own life, his humiliation on the cross, and the exaltation of who he is in his resurrection. God, I pray that you would help us to stake our lives to that person and that life. For those who have been beaten down and are afraid and are embarrassed and ashamed. I pray that they would see and know that these are the ones that you've come for and they don't need to be afraid. Father, I pray for those who are here who do not follow you, have never followed you. I pray, God, that they will hear the good news that though following you does cost everything, it does not purchase a life of misery. It purchases a life of joy because in you is everything that is good and beautiful and true. I pray that they will see that there is room in the kingdom for people like them and they are desired, they are invited, they are wanted there by the king that would die to make room for them. Jesus, help us all to see you a little more clearly today that our lives might be illuminated and defined by your life better and better, more more and more clearly day by day. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.